Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. The art world has been turned on its head this year. Visitor numbers to galleries plummeted as the pandemic forced shops to close their doors. So the art world had to shift, kicking off a digital art craze. Back in March, a new record was set when a piece of digital artwork by the artist Beeple sold for $69 million. The art was sold as a digital file called an NFT. NFT stands for non-fungible token, a term that can apply to any digital collectible. Many underrepresented artists who haven't been given broad access to mainstream galleries think that the crypto-traded art could be a viable avenue to sell their work. But will this new frontier offer more opportunities than obstacles? Joining me now, Natrice Gaskins, Afrofuturist digital artist, assistant director of the Lesley University STEAM Learning Lab, and the author of Techno-Vernacular Creativity and Innovation, Culturally Relevant Making Inside and Outside of the Classroom. Her artwork is part of the forthcoming Futures exhibit at the Smithsonian in November. Welcome, Natrice. Hi. Well, I am so glad to have you, and I'm going to start off this way by helping to define Afrofuturism. That's a term I'm sure some people may not have heard. I like the way Ingrid Lafleur, a curator, defines it, a way of imagining possible futures through a Black cultural lens. Would you agree? And what would you add to that definition? I agree to some extent. I also think a lot of uh, Afrofuturism is about kind of Sankofa, like looking at the past Mm -hmm. and present in order to create you know, an alternative future. So not like trying to create, you know, there's a continuation or continuity between the past, present, and future. So I think navigating that time and space is, I think, a lot of what Afrofuturism is about. So building on Ingrid's definition. All right. So we're talking about Afrofuturism, and it may be hard for people to think back to a time when you know, folks of color, certainly black folks, just to be seen in a space that seemed to be of the future was weird. So I want you to go way back, listeners, to Gene Roddenberry's creator of Star Trek, the original series, I mean the original one. And back then it was very bold of him to cast Nichelle Nichols as Nyota Uhuru. Here's some clips of her on that show. See, in our century, we've learned not to fear words. May I present our communications officer, Lieutenant Uhuru? Starship Enterprise, there's someone who's in Satan's guise, whose devil ears and devil eyes could rip your heart from you. (laughs) Mr. Spock, sometimes I think if I hear that word frequency once more, I'll cry. So that was Lieutenant Uhuru, who was very famous in her time on the original Star Trek series to the point that Dr. Martin Luther King encouraged her to stay on the series because of 
of what he saw and understood that her presence there was both a role model, but also a statement about the fact that African-Americans could be anywhere, including in the future and in space. And here we are, Natrice, <laughs> light years later, it would seem, culturally, with Afrofuturism defining, if in many ways, this time and period. What do you think about that? Oh, well, I think it's, um, you know, a lot of people will go back even as far as with W.B. Du Bois, who did a lot of short stories in the turn of the 20th century. I think one is called The Comet. This is on the literature side, not television or film. But um, he also wrote something called The Princess Steel, in which he was uh, kind of exploring kind of technology and science and um, the future. So I think from the literature side, you can go back to, you know, the turn of the 20th century and then even mid-century looking at uh, Nicole Nichols' role that defined it for television and entertainment. So, And then, of course, what's happening today, a uh, uh, Friend of a friend of mine, uh, Sean Proctor, just went. I guess was the orbit around uh, Earth. Mm. Oh, the 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 doctor that was in space on the Inspiration. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, she painted, she drew in space, and put a video up about how creating her paintings. I would call that Afrofuturism. Um, you know, she's uh, painting uh, kind of an Afrofuturistic portrait. Um, while uh, orbiting Earth. Hmm. And that's real life now, no longer television or literature or film. Someone actually did that in our time, you know, in the last week or so. Well, in real life, your art is very much of this time. Tell me how you came to this. Were you an artist first and then you began to move into the digital space because you found technology inspiring to you or what? I, my mother was a computer programmer and analyst when I was growing up and uh, in Kentucky. And I went to a, art, a high school for the arts, uh, well, a magnet high school that had a uh, visual arts major. And the uh, ceramics teacher decided to teach computer graphics um, toward the end of my uh, time there. And that's what got me into uh, majoring in computer graphics in 1988. But did you always see it as, as an art form? Yes. Mm. So it was taught by the same teacher that taught me pottery, taught me computer graphics. Okay. All right. So now bring us all the way to today where you are using this in digital spaces that it's it's hard for me, it's hard for me to get my mind around where you're now into the what we call the non-fungible tokens, the NFTs. You're doing that kind of artwork. All right. I know that's another term that people are like, okay, what is that? I'm going to let you explain, but here's a little clip from Saturday Night Live explaining it as well. Can you please explain what's an NFT? I said, what the hell's an NFT? It's like real life monopoly. Everyone is doing it like Gronkowski. Can you please help me make an NFT? Hey, here's the thing about NFTs. It's a non-fungible token, you see. Non-fungible means that it's unique. There can only be one like you and me. Ooh. NFTs are insane. insane. Built on a blockchain. That's right. A digital ledger of transactions. It records information on what's happening. When it's minted, you can sell it as art. And this concludes my rapping part. Wow. All right. So you're doing the NFTs, Natrice. We've got a little bit of background from SNL. Tell us how it works. Um, actually, the step before the NFTs, which actually may, uh, helped me to jump into it, was that I was doing um, digital artwork using uh, artificial intelligence. Um, and I got to that because I taught it. I was teaching at Boston Arts Academy AP Computer Science Principles. 
And all of those students were arts majors and I needed to find ways to introduce computer science to them since they were so embedded in the arts. And I discovered that you can use artificial intelligence to make art. And so after I taught it, I started using the technology myself and then started getting good feedback from it and just kept going. And so by the time NFTs became um, a big thing, I already had uh, hundreds of, of images that were stored online that I could use to mint. And so the way it works is actually initially when I first heard about cryptocurrency and crypto art, I wasn't very interested, partly because the environmental issue. So you have a situation where um, there's gas consumption, it's seen as gas consumption and the carbon footprint. So you, if you're using Bitcoin, that's kind of, if you, one Bitcoin transaction would be the equivalent of a few transatlantic flights mm. in terms of mm. um, gas, us- gas usage. So, um, and then uh, the other popular blockchain stuff would be like Ethereum. And Ethereum is the equivalent for one Ethereum token would be the equivalent of one transatlantic flight. Just one token wow. in terms of transactions. So more recently, there's been very small um, movements towards a clean NFTs. So finding ways to do transactions, but for fractions of a penny. And so um, that's really opened the door for artists to be, especially during the pandemic, to jump in there. So the blockchain technology is basically a ledger, like a spreadsheet. And each cell in there has an identifier, in this case, a token or some kind of value that, the, that represents the NFT. And so when you purchase an NFT or you collect it, you're collecting that token, you're collecting that asset that sits in that, on that ledger. So, you know, what's hard for me to get my mind around is that, all right, when you make something that's digital, it's usually just not one. You know, it, it doesn't feel to me like that's just the one thing. You know, you can, for lack of a better word, copy it so easily. And so how do you sell what's unique and how do you sell the uniqueness of it is what I guess I'm getting at when it feels like it's something that can be copied. Well, it's not always unique. And some of times it is. Sometimes it's just one thing and like the Beeple situation. In other cases, it's multiple editions and you get that one edition. So people who are into collecting NFTs are really about the collect their, their body of their collection, all of the assembled aggregated NFTs that they've purchased and what that tells about them as a collector. So it's not really that. Sometimes it's the one that strikes, strikes them for some reason and then they realize, okay, I have this collection of work. Look at me, I'm a collector. And then they do this on, on Twitter where they'll advertise their collection. And somehow that increases their status as collectors. Just to make an analogy, so I I collect a lot, quite a bit of art, and I have you know a limited edition. So if I would have sec the second of of fifty, it's similar to what you're saying in this instance. Yes. Okay. All right. So I would purchase one of those. But here's the thing, Natrice. I have seen your work. It's so beautiful. I would want you to hang it on my wall. I don't know what I'm looking at when I would just own it in a digital space. Do you know what I mean? I don't know how other people see it. I know I can send them to the computer, but I want you to come in my house and see it. It is This is my struggle around this digital space. Yeah, so one of the challenges is, because I, I have a show um, in Buffalo currently, and when I, I didn't go because of COVID, but I saw the video and photographs and noticed that the, music, the gallery, and this is the case in many um, other situations too, where they print out the work doesn't look the same as it does on screen. Mm. So some of the screen aspect of when you're viewing the work doesn't translate that well to print. 
And it really kind of depends on the image. When I get to choose, like, you know, this particular exhibition, they told me which ones they wanted to show. And I just said, okay, here's, you know, a high resolution versions of these images. And then they printed it out themselves. But unless they calibrate that printer to, you know, print a certain way, then it's not going to look the way it looks on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's in my control, and um, so my Smithsonian exhibition, one of the curators asked me if they could have me print out the Octavia Butler, speaking of Afrofuturism, the Octavia Butler portrait that's going to be in the museum um, in November, they asked me to print it out for another project. And so it's now in my control. So I chose the correct printer and printed out pretty much close to what it looks like on screen. Mm-hmm. But then I had more control. It was coming from me. I chose um, a company or you know a professional printer that had calibrate their printer to make sure it looked like what it looked like on screen. So talk to us, those of us who are the wall hanging types, <laughs> about how... There's no loss of soulfulness in the, you know, trying to find the right printer to have it hung on the wall when that's actually not the space that it's created in. And also it feels like there's a lot of tech talk in this and less art talk. So bring me to the place because I know that's not where you are and that that's not what your your art represents uh, to explain why this is so exciting for you and, you know, how you are soulfully creating it. So uh, very recently when Michael K. Williams died, um, usually when someone I really respect or I'm inspired by dies, I do something called a gilded portrait using AI. And so I'll use a particular algorithm and a particular set of styles that recreate or create, you know, whether it's Diane Carroll, Michael K. Williams, and more recently Melvin um, Van Peebles. And I, use, I do a gilded portrait. So I did a gilded portrait of Michael K. Williams pretty quickly around the time that I found out he had passed and, and went out on social media. On Twitter, you had 2.8 million impressions or people mm. viewed it and over almost 60,000 likes um, wow. and increased my number of followers. It doubled on all my social media platforms, doubled and on Instagram, it tripled. And every day there's people rediscovering the work. And there's something about the gildedness of those portraits that speaks to something that touches people, maybe because it is elevating them in a way. And that was all done in a, in a digital fashion. It was all done by the process that I go through, including for um, the exhibitions that are coming up, just to do that portrait. But people haven't printed that out. They just see that on the screen or see that on a social media feed. And then if I wanted to, not the particular, those portraits, but if I wanted to mint it as an NFT, I just do that. I just go to my blockchain marketplace site, which in this case is called Hic et Nunc, um, which stands for here and now in Latin. And it's where it's kind of the cool artist space for people doing NFTs. And it's clean, meaning that it doesn't take a lot of gas consumption. The carbon carbon footprint is smaller. And so I can just mint it, but meaning I, you know, kind of upload it to there and I give it a value. I said, well, I want, you know, um, the tokens is called Tezos or Tez. And I said, I want to sell this for 25 Tezos, which is maybe 180 to $200 and then in US dollars. And so then I do that. And then I say, if someone wants to resell it, which you can, then I want to get 25% of that sale. Right. And all that's done at the minting process. The minute that I upload it to the system, I say how much it costs, how much I want, if it's, if it resells, how many editions I want to put out there. Usually it's like 10 or 15. Um, and then I swap after I've minted it, it's on the blockchain. It's now a, a, a digital asset on the blockchain. And then I can swap it, which means I allow people to purchase you know, uh, an addition of that NFT. 
So you could, you know, those digital artworks, those AI artworks that I do that people respond to, some of them, particularly ones that either my photographs or stock photos or the original images will get minted um, as NFTs. Hmm. So just to be clear for people who are wondering, Michael Williams is a legendary actor in The Wire and several other big television series who recently died, as did Melvin Van Peoples, who is a pioneer in African-American filmmaking in this country. He was 89 and just died recently as well. And of course, Diane Carroll, a pioneering actress, just so folks can understand the, the import of the people that you were talking to. So while you're talking, you talked about the process, what it meant to you, and, you know, the amazing instant response. That says to me that there is an outreach and an access to audiences that you haven't had and that you talk about many artists who are underrepresented have not had through galleries. So this is a whole other pathway. Explain why this opens up a whole other world to you. Because now I don't have to go through a gallery to get people interested in my work. Um, although I don't have time for it at the moment, for every Michael K. Williams portrait, there are dozens of requests to make art from just people. Hmm. Um, sometimes it's of, you know, image, specific images. Um, sometimes it's of my parents who passed away in the 1980. Sometimes, you know, it's different people who've seen it, respond to it, want to know if I could do a portrait or some type of artwork. They're trying to do commissions. So suddenly, now I'm doing commissions. And I did a commission locally for in Roxbury. And every time I drive past the uh, building, I can see the work. And, and that is printed on like, canvas and on the wall. But I see it every time I pass it on the street. I can see the artwork in the lobby. And that's the first time I've been able to do that in my life is commission work. Um, so that's happened because of things like the Michael K. Williams type of work that go up on social media. So is this the new opportunity for artists like yourself who have always had those, the, and particularly in, in the larger context, the underrepresented artists have difficulty accessing these gallery spaces? Yes. And a lot of the work, and I explained this on a panel on NFTs, it, you know, there was a gallery owner local from Brookline who talked about most of her artists are doing paintings, you know, traditional artwork. But then they also supplement the income with NFTs on top of that. Mm. Um, and I said, well, the work that I do is digital. And sometimes it doesn't look great printed. Some people will put up a screen in the gallery and then show it, you know, like on an iPad or a tablet and uh, attach it to a wall so that you can see it play or whatever it's doing in the gallery. And that's one way to do it, especially if it's like animation or something like that. But for these other, these portraits and things like that, it's uh, a lot of people really want to own it, to have it where they can put it up on the wall. They just need to really make sure that they have a quality printer. Otherwise, it doesn't have the same, it doesn't look the same as they see it on screen. But the bottom line is these are new opportunities. Absolutely. Every single, from the commissions to the, you know, the commission at the Smithsonian to the commission locally here in Roxbury to um, people offering, you know, asking me if I do commissions because they've seen a portrait of mine on social media, on Twitter, um, that comes in all the every day now. It used to be every once in a while. Now it's every day. Mm. So it's about to get even bigger because for the 175th anniversary, the Smithsonian is has a blockbuster of an opening. This is their new gallery, first building-wide exploration of the future on the National Mall. This is a space that spans 32,000 square feet. And 
they've commissioned work to go in there, very specific work, and one of the pieces is yours. It's uh, in the announced commission featured futurists, you a portrait series, and there's the work that you've been describing and the technique with a lot of the technique that you have described here to make it. Uh, they call it a new aesthetic vocabulary beyond the scope of human thought. That's pretty powerful. They're very excited about your work, and I imagine you're excited about being a part of this. Yeah, um, the fact that they wanted 11 portraits, um, they'll be about five and a half feet tall in the space. And then they insisted on me doing a self-portrait. So wow. it's like 10 portraits <laughs> and then a self-portrait in the Smithsonian. That is so exciting. Mm -hmm. You're sounding really calm about this. I mean, this is kind of a huge <laughs> deal. I I'm looking for a little bit more excitement. <laughs> I think I'll be excited. I, you know, part of my worry was about the uh, printing of it. Uh, but this is the, if I can find a good printer locally here in Boston, then they, the Smithsonian can find good printers where they're at. So I should be a little more trusting that they're going to be able to print these out and, and blow them up so tall um, in the space. But there's going to be 11 of them throughout the exhibition. So is this the future for Afrofuturism? I think... Um, there's a, a, a colleague and friend of mine named Stephanie Dinkins, who she also collaborates with AI, but she does things like with robots and um, and things that even including going into putting in a gallery space. She calls it Afro nowism. Mm. And she's really kind of talking to a different kind of sensibility, but that is kind of inspired by Afrofuturism. It's like a practice that imagines the world one needs it to be in order to support successful engagement in the here and now. Alternate futures are great, but what about right now? Like, how can we use artificial intelligence and stuff that's negative, can be negative um, and harmful in terms of like racial bias and so on? How can we use those technologies or similar technologies now to uh, liberate or to kind of counter or interrogate those uses of AI that are harmful? And so her work does that. A lot of artists, and she's African-American, there's a lot of artists out there who are try more and more um, for you know younger than me who are really taking on this work and I kind of kind of fits both in Afrofuturism because I think it impacts the future but also this idea that Stephanie came up with called Afro Nowism and so yeah I think it's a time where we start creating we prototype we create these projects uh, I got funded as, as part of a team from the Mozilla Foundation to you know black artists um, interrogating artificial intelligence so me and two other women one a dancer, the other one um, an architect, got together and we did a carnival AI project. So it's basically artificial intelligence through and for carnival across the uh, Caribbean diaspora. Is Do you see your work evolving even another turn um, from the space you're at now? Absolutely. I think this, this is the beginning. Um, I think we are, are using our current spaces where we have access to to create apps and things like that, that people can have on their devices, that people can put in the gallery, that people can have outdoors. I think it's just bringing people to the point where they can also create that and create a, a knowledge, have some knowledge of it, I think is the, the next step, getting it out into the world. And social media is one way to do that. Well, you are on the cutting edge. So, so great to talk to you. It's been a, it's been a, for just in two years um, since the pandemic hit, it was six months before the pandemic hit, I was already talking to curators at the Smithsonian, but it didn't really kick in until after the pandemic hit. And then at the same time, then the commissions came in 
And it's just been kind of a ball rolling since then. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Sure. Natrice Gaskins is an Afrofuturist digital artist, assistant director of the Leslie University STEAM Learning Lab, and the author of Techno Vernacular Creativity and Innovation, Culturally Relevant Making Inside and Outside of the Classroom. Her artwork is part of the forthcoming Futures exhibit at the Smithsonian in November, which will be on view through July 2022. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at gbh.org news under the radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubley and engineered by Dave Goodman. Sarah Kaplan is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.